Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I count Phil Howell a dear friend and faithful gospel partner in ministry and in the Christian life. Uh, I enjoy him and his similitude to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> if you would, please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer for the blessing of his preached word. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we confess that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. We confess that we have tried in vain to live on bread alone. And we can testify that it does not work, it does not satisfy. Only the bread of your word gives our souls life and sustenance. We confess with your word that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So speak your word now, for your servants are listening. Exalt Jesus. Convert sinners. Edify your saints so that Jesus would be made much of for his sake. Amen. One of the earliest examples of anti-Christian graffiti was found scrawled on the buildings in the center of Rome. It's a caricature of a crucified figure with a donkey's head. And it was accompanied with the inscription, Alexa Menos worships his God. This is the way many people still today view both Christ and those who follow him. They mock. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 27, 27 to 54. But our sermon itself will not be expositional in nature, as I'm sure you are accustomed to from your faithful pastors. So I'm not going to take the point of the text and make it the point of the sermon. My task here is more narrow. We are going to focus on the use of Psalm 22 in Matthew 27, 27 to 54. And we are going to ask ourselves, what is Matthew's point in setting the crucifixion in the light of Psalm 22? If you have cross-references in your Bible, you'll see in our passage multiple references to different verses in Psalm 22, and as we study these paragraphs, we'll see how Matthew triangulates patriots, pedestrians, and priests. All around the center of Psalm 22 and their unwitting fulfillments or misuses of Psalm 22 in relation to Jesus. And we're going to ask, why does Matthew do that? And why is it that of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, Matthew only includes the one where Jesus quotes Matthew 22? What is Matthew's point in using Psalm 22 as a context and key for understanding the meaning of Jesus' death? I hope we'll see together this morning that Matthew uses Psalm 22 as a lens to focus on the mockery of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. And in doing so, Matthew makes a mockery of the mockery itself. In other words, those who mock Jesus' crucifixion using the words and images of Psalm 22 actually speak far more accurately than they know. They intend to mock Jesus' kingship or his claim to kingship, yet in doing so, they unwittingly affirm it. Jesus really is the righteous sufferer of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 affirms kingship belongs to the Lord. Notwithstanding the mockery of the cross. So it is not even just Matthew who mocks their mockery. Scripture itself and God's providence makes a mockery of their mockery. You remember Hebrews 12 too, how Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. Matthew himself is despising the shame of the cross here by focusing on how the mockery of Jesus magnifies the majesty of Jesus, unwittingly. 
In the simplest terms, the world is confident but wrong to mock Jesus' kingship. I think that's why Matthew uses Psalm 22 as he does. That's his point. If you write anything down, write that sentence down. That's the big idea. The world is confident but wrong to mock Jesus' kingship. Unbeknownst to them, Jesus really is the person. They mock him for impersonating from their perspective. He really is the Messiah foreshadowed by the royal and righteous sufferer of Psalm 22. And still today, people mock Jesus' kingship confidently, wrongly, and in vain. It does not make him any less majestic. And this is true not only of pagan people, but also of people who would view themselves as pious in one way or another, as we'll see. And it is Jesus' cry of dereliction, quoted, quoting Psalm 22, that is the ironic piece de resistance, the crowning moment, the climax, not only of his suffering and abandonment, but also of the ironic affirmation of his real identity. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I start by reading out loud for us Matthew 27, 27 to 38. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed or a cane in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. So first, we see, if you're a note-taker, pagan patriots mock Jesus' kingship. Now, if you're a stickler for detail, then you should know that the Greek word that Matthew uses for mock or make fun of is not the same one used in Psalm 22. That doesn't ruin the sermon, though. They're synonyms, and both words express the same idea. In the Old Testament, Matthew's word for mock, the one he actually uses, always has violent overtones. Long story short, Jesus is being treated in Matthew 27, both by the soldiers and by the priests, as God treated Pharaoh, as the Philistines treated Samson, they made fun of him, as the Benjamites, Benjaminites abused the Levites' concubine with violence, and as Israel abused the prophets with violence. This is not just words. This is violent mocking, mistreatment, abuse. And what is it about Jesus that these soldiers are mocking? They're mocking Jesus' claim to kingship, which does, in fact, allude to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. They crowned Jesus with thorns, mocked kingship. They put a reed or a cane, a stalk, in his hand for a scepter, mock kingship. They greet him with a sarcastic salute. Hail, King of the Jews! You can almost see them. And then they beat him over the head with a mock scepter that they just gave him, and they lead him out to be crucified, all of which alludes to and actually fulfills Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
These pagan soldiers divide Jesus' garments and gamble for them in verse 35. Also from Psalm 22:18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus is crucified between two criminals in Matthew 27:38, which also recalls that idea of being surrounded by evildoers. And what do they post above his head in Matthew 27, 37? The whole reason for his crucifixion, the charge inscribed against him as if it were in scare quotes. This is the king of the Jews. As if to say, this is what happens to you when you try to impersonate the king of a country that has already been subjugated by the Roman Empire. Subtext. Don't try this at home. Yet in the context of so many allusions to Psalm 22, it reminds you again of Psalm 22, 28. Kingship belongs to the Lord. Second, pious pedestrians mock Jesus' kingship in verses 39 to 40. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So these pedestrians represent the crowd, common people. They're neither Roman soldiers nor Jewish priests. They are people, no more, no less. Probably from every class of the local population, farmers, tradesmen, paid slaves, secretaries, property managers, manual laborers, all the way up to landowners and statesmen. In verse 39, these pedestrians, those passing by, the spectacle of the cross are wagging their heads. And this is the real equivalent of that social media abbreviation, SMH. Shaking my head. When do you use that expression? When you can't believe how foolishly someone else is talking or acting. You're incredulous. You're like, are you serious? You gotta be kidding me. They're serious about what they're saying online? Y'all are arguing about that? Shaking your head at someone usually means you think they're being ridiculous or absurd, nonsensical, self-contradictory, all without knowing it. Shaking your head at them is the way that you express the thought, don't they know any better than that? We use it to convey disappointment, disapproval, frustration, and impatience. That's what these pedestrians are thinking and expressing towards Jesus. You died for that? They think he's the ridiculous one. They think they're the ones with common sense. They think Jesus has been absurd, and for his absurdity, he has met an absurd end. They think... Jesus should have known better. Shaking my head. What's more, the Greek word Matthew uses for wagging is the same Greek verb we encountered in Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. So here are the oi polloi, the rabble, the mob, the common people shaking their heads at Jesus, everybody thinking they know better than he knew. He should have known better. Yet, you see what Matthew is doing? From Matthew's perspective, who should know better? Jesus or the crowds? Matthew is shaking his heads as the crowds are shaking their heads at Jesus. You know that because he's alluding to the messianic prophecy of Psalm 22 in their shaking of their heads. They're playing the part of the persecutors in Psalm 22. And they are, in fact, the ones who should have known better than to crucify Jesus because their own scriptures testify 
to him. The other way you know that is by what they're saying as they're wagging their heads. Look there in verse 40, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They're shaking their heads at what they think is Jesus' preposterous claim to destroy the temple and rebuild it in just three days. Outlandish. Absurd. Impossible. Stupid even. And totally irreverent from a Jewish perspective. I mean, that's offensive, what Jesus said. No good Jew would ever say any such thing about the symbol of God's majesty and presence with his people. Could Jesus, could any Jew be more misguided than to make that kind of claim? And then to die for it. But from Matthew's perspective, who is it that is destroying the temple? They are. How? By destroying Jesus' body in the very act of crucifying him. Destroying the temple is what is actually happening right now on the cross. And Jesus isn't the one doing it. They are. And his rebuilding of it in his resurrection cannot happen if he comes down from the cross and saves himself. The destruction of the temple of his body must be completed in his death if he is to accomplish his mission of saving sinners like you and me and them. He cannot save himself if his own words are to come true. The temple of his body must be destroyed if he is to rebuild it at all. And when they say, if you are the son of God, who's that sound like to you? If you're reading through Matthew really quickly, who's that sound like? If you are the son of God, who said that before in Matthew? Satan. They not only use the same phrase, but they also tempt Jesus in the same way Satan tempted him with that same phrase in Matthew 4. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, stop suffering, man. Just take the kingdom. Take it. Prove yourself to be the Son of God on our terms, in our way, in our time, as we would if we were you, by escaping suffering, not by enduring it. You hear them wagging their head. Man, you don't even know what's good for you. If you really are the Son of God, then you don't have to take this. We certainly wouldn't. Again, but you see what Matthew is doing. These pedestrians think they are being pious Jews. They think they're being the religious ones, the spiritual ones, the conservative ones. By shaking their heads in exasperation with Jesus' claim to divinity, who does he think he is? If he is who he says he is, why doesn't he do what I think he should do? And yet all the while, Matthew is shaking his head at them because they simulate the very voice of Satan. They're quoting Satan. And so Matthew is looking at you as his reader, saying, you see what I'm doing? You see what I'm doing? Who do they think he is? Who does he think he is? Who do they think they are talking to him like that? That's what Matthew wants you to say. You see, even the piety of these pedestrians is satanic. And there you see Matthew shaking his head. Everything about this paragraph is Matthew shaking his head at the crowds because they are shaking their heads at Jesus. And Matthew wants you to shake your head too. Not only at the crowds, but truth be told, at yourself. When you do not believe and trust that Jesus really is who he says he is, when you do not believe that he has done what he says he has done, and when you doubt that he can do what he says he will do.
for you. Why don't you believe him? Who's the foolish one? Who really should be shaking their heads? And at what? Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal second person of the triune God, sent by the Father, filled with the Spirit, embodied in human flesh, to make himself present among us, tabernacling among us as God's temple in his own human person. And right here, in the very moment of his mocking, he is being destroyed as the guilt-bearing sacrifice for all the sinful mockery and all the unbelief of all those who will ever come to trust in Jesus and repent of mocking him. Third, pious professionals, or, if you like, professional pietists, the priests, mock Jesus' kingship. In verses 41 to 44, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. There's one thing that priests and robbers agree on. It's that Jesus is not who he said he was. So now it's not just the pedestrians. It's Joe Sixpack. It's the professionals, priests, scribes, elders. It's not just Joe Lunchpail saying these things. It's the professional religionists who are saying this against Jesus. You got yourself wrong, pal. You're on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of the temple. You're on the wrong side of us. You're on the wrong side of God. These are the ancient equivalents of pastors and professors. They think they have captured a neat little irony in Jesus' death. He saved others, can't even save himself. Ha! The miracle worker needs one miracle more and he just can't come up with it. The great healer goes unhealed himself. What a bitter irony, they say. How insightful of them, right? Well, they're really enjoying this. Here's a miracle for you to work, Jesus. Come on down now and you will have earned our faith. Prove yourself to us in our way. Be our kind of savior. And to put an even finer point on it, they quote Psalm 22 with what they think is a delicious irony. The religious professionals think they're the ones thinking biblically about Jesus. They think they have scripture on their side. These men knew their Bibles better than anybody. They were so careful in their morality that they tithed on their herbs. They were squeaky clean in their righteousness. They could pray and fast and quote scripture in circles around you and me. They would win every Bible sword drill in Sunday school against us. And these are the men sticking it to Jesus from Psalm 22 as he hangs there on the cross, or so they think. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Well... If you're the son of God, then why isn't God treating you as if God is your father? Why doesn't he get you down from there? Now look at how confident these religious professionals are as they quote their Bibles from memory against Jesus. They've got chapter and verse on them. Psalm 22.8 is obviously against him in their minds. They think the pedestrians are right to shake their heads at Jesus. Oh, we know how Psalm 22 applies to you. You have blasphemed your way into being forsaken by God, just like the sinner in Psalm 22. There's a reason you're being crucified up there and we're being critical of you down here. I mean, what could be clearer? You're the one hanging on the cross. 
and we've got Psalm 22 against you. Checkmate. It's because you made yourself out to be God, and we knew better than to do that ourselves. We are more humble than you. We are more obedient than you. We are more biblical than you. And so are the pedestrians shaking their heads. But again, you see what Matthew is doing. Matthew is shaking his head at how the religious professionals weaponize Psalm 22 against Jesus. Don't they know any better? Don't they realize that Psalm 22 is actually about their suffering Messiah? They are quoting a chapter about their Messiah against their Messiah. How meta is that? They think they are sticking Psalm 22 to Jesus when Matthew is showing us that they are actually sticking it to themselves. Their scripture quotation does not actually condemn Jesus. It condemns themselves for condemning Jesus. And now, finally, after all of that, fourth, Jesus owns his identity as the mocked king of Psalm 22. In verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when Jesus quotes Psalm 22:1, he is not the first person to quote it during his own crucifixion. He's not quoting it in a vacuum. He's quoting it in context. His own experiences of suffering have all evoked Psalm 22:1 for him and for everyone else. He has seen and felt the bulls surrounding him from Psalm 22:12. He has seen the wagging heads and heard the mocking voices of Psalm 22:6-8. He has felt the piercing of his hands and feet from Psalm 22:16. He has seen the gambling for his garments in Psalm 22:18. He has heard them mocking his piety and challenging God to save him if Jesus really is the delight of God's heart. He endured it all in the short space of these six hours. And by the time Jesus quotes Psalm 22:1, Psalm 22:6-18 has already played itself all out all around him and in him. And if the wording and personal perspective of the psalm itself is any indication, then Jesus is aware of all of this as it's happening against him. The psalm is written from the perspective of the one who is suffering. He knows what's happening not only to him and within him, but around him, both the psalmist and Jesus. So the question then is not how could Jesus possibly quote Psalm 22.1. The question is what more appropriate psalm could he possibly quote in view of everything they're doing and saying to him and about him as he's hanging there on the cross. And what does he mean by it? And who does he intend this prayer to be heard by anyway? Because everyone else around him is doing and saying things that evoke Psalm 22, the best answer is that Jesus is not merely intending God as the private heavenly audience for this prayer, quoting it privately or merely praying it silently in his heart or just whispering or mumbling it inaudibly under his breath. That's not what Matthew says he did. The text is clear about this in verse 46. He shouted it with a loud voice. He is quoting and praying Psalm 22:1 very publicly, audibly, and in conversational response to the priest's quotation of it. He is praying it. It is a personal prayer from the personal heart of Christ on the cross, from Jesus' heart to the heart of his Father. That is true. But it is also a very public, loud prayer. And it counters the perspective 
of the pious pedestrians and professionals who are weaponizing Psalm 22 against him. He says it in his own native Aramaic, so many people who hear it misunderstand it. And the probable reason he quotes it in Aramaic is that they'd misunderstand him even worse if they heard it in their own language. They are already twisting the sword of the Spirit in Jesus' side, even as he hangs there dying on the cross. If he quoted it in their language, they would have said, yep, see, see, got you. They thought they had Jesus dead to rights, chapter and verse, and so Jesus, from the cross, prays Psalm 22 correctly and audibly of himself. They take Psalm 22 out of context. He puts it back into context. I am that man. I am him. And you have no idea what you are doing or who you are doing it to. Better yet, Jesus puts himself in the context of Psalm 22. He deliberately inhabits Psalm 22 in the abandonment of the suffering, rejected, righteous, Davidic king. I am him. I am him. The mockers treat Jesus as their forefathers treated David himself in Psalm 22, and Jesus says, that is exactly who I am, and that is exactly how you are treating me. You have quoted Psalm 22 against me, and I hang here telling you with my dying breath I am the Psalm 22 man, whether you see me that way or not. The cry of dereliction is then both a cry of abandonment by God and at the same time an affirmation of Jesus' own Davidic messianic identity no matter what anybody else was saying about him or doing to him. It is an in-the-moment application of Jesus' own concept the Son of Man goes just as it is written of him. Even Jesus' mocking and abandonment is happening just as it is written in Psalm 22, and Jesus knows it in his dying moments. And Jesus clings to the Word of God in order to cling to his own identity when that is exactly what everyone else is denying in the way they mock him from Psalm 22. And Jesus clings to his identity using the very psalm they use to mock his claimed identity. I am that. That is what Matthew hears in the cry of dereliction because he has shaped the crucifixion narrative in the mold of Psalm 22. The priests have categorized and condemned Jesus as if he is the one who is rejected in Psalm 22. And in praying Psalm 22, 1, Jesus says back to them, exactly, exactly. I am the Psalm 22 man enduring a worse abandonment than David could ever fear. But for your sin, not mine. Just as we sung earlier, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Scholars debate whether Jesus intends to allude to the victorious last half of Psalm 22 that we left unread earlier in the service. Some say he is referring to that victorious last half of the psalm. Others say that the New Testament authors, while often alluding to the Old Testament context, never allude to it in a way that contradicts the quoted part. I don't think we have to choose because we have both abandonment and affirmation in Jesus' quote. My God, my God, that is affirmation, that is hope. Why have you forsaken me? That is abandonment. But notice the abandonment is articulated in the relational context of affirmation and hope. My God, my God. Who is he saying it to? Who, does, who is he bringing his sense of abandonment to? The God, the God he calls mine. 
there is a flicker of faithful hope even amid his despair. And he is dying, affirming his divine identity that is being denied as he hangs there. Matthew, you'll remember, introduced Jesus' birth in the very first verse as the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And this is now how Matthew is presenting Jesus' death by triangulating the historical participants around the center of a Davidic lament, Psalm 22. And there are different interpretations and applications of it to Jesus. The cry of dereliction in Matthew functions rhetorically as Matthew's way of affirming Jesus' authentic Davidic divinity. Jesus really is that righteous sufferer. He is great David's greater son, even in his crucifixion and abandonment by God. And Jesus affirms on the cross what his mockers deny, even in the midst of his genuine grief. He is the sinless son of God who must not save himself if he is to save others from their sins, not just from their sicknesses. There is then both a why and a my in Jesus' cry of abandonment. But the my, my God, shapes the context of the why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still owns God as his, and he still trusts that God owns him. Still, in the middle of suffering, the darkness of God's judicial wrath for all the sins of all who will ever repent and believe, the why question is unavoidable, especially in Jesus' humanity, even though the my remains unquestioned. So even if Jesus does not emphasize hope over despair in the experience of the cross, Matthew himself wants us as his readers to realize where this is going and that Jesus' hope is holding even as his death is unfolding. If the suffering half of Psalm 22 is now underway, then the victorious half is soon to follow. If the abandonment is underway, then the vindication is on the way. Because Matthew's book is the book of the genealogy of the son of David. And it is David's suffering in Psalm 22 that shapes Matthew's perspective on Christ's suffering in Matthew 27. Verses 47 to 50, people misunderstand Jesus' claim to kingship. They misunderstand Jesus' Aramaic. So instead of interpreting Eli as my God, instead of even realizing that he's quoting the very psalm they've used to mock him, they think he's calling the prophet Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, Elijah never died, did he? He was taken up to heaven on a chariot. So they think Jesus is asking Elijah to ride down on that same chariot and save him from death as Elijah himself was saved from death. Again, how confident they are, all are to condemn Jesus. They think they know exactly what's going on, and they are totally wrong. Look at how reality testifies to Jesus' kingship. Verses 51 to 53, the, the temple curtain tears, indicating unrestricted access to God now through Jesus' death. The rocks split, indicating the judgment of God and the new creation to come. The dead rise, indicating new life by a new spirit and a new covenant cut in the death of Jesus and his blood. And who are the only people, who are the only people at the cross to testify to Jesus' kingship? Pagans. The pagan patriots, the soldiers. The only people who recognize Jesus' identity are pagan patriots in verse 54. But the centurion and those with him keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and everything that happened, feared greatly, saying together, truly, this was the Son of God. Unbeknownst to these biblically illiterate soldiers, they are affirming that Jesus' interpretation of Psalm 22 is the right one, even though he is the one condemned on the cross and all the religious prof professionals disagree with Jesus and get it wrong. 
And this confession of faith comes from the lips of multiple men who actually had everything to lose by admitting that confession. Roman soldiers assigned to guard Jesus and in all probability some of the very ones who had mocked Jesus just six hours earlier. You, you know what would have happened to these guys had anybody heard what they said? They'd have gotten crucified too. You believe that? You believe he's the king of the Jews? Up you go. But they couldn't help it. They saw how he died. They saw what happened. And they had everything to lose and nothing to gain by confessing it. Matthew's last word from Golgotha is from the lips of a Roman guard of a group of Roman soldiers shaking their heads at themselves. Truly, this was the Son of God. What have we done? Jesus really did die as God's son for our sins. That's the first and most important application. Jesus really did die as God's son for our sins. Jesus really is who everyone mocked him for impersonating. He is God's son, sinless divinity, clothed in humanity. He came from heaven, took our flesh, took our place on that cross to suffer the shame and curse for all of our sins so that we could be reconciled to his father. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He sacrificed himself. He died to save us from all God's wrath and condemnation for all the guilt of all the sins of all who will ever turn from their sin and trust in him as God's Son and our Savior. And because he did that for us, those who trust him have no reason to be ashamed before God anymore. You realize that, Christian? Jesus took all the guilt and shame of all of our sins, even the most embarrassing ones, in his body on the tree. Even the sin you committed yesterday last week, even the sin that you would be mortified for anybody else here to discover that you had committed, that one. He took not only the guilt, he took the shame for you before God so that you can take that shame to him and through him to God without fear. So that you don't have to feel alienated from God. Because Jesus suffered that alienation and abandonment for you on the cross. All of it. All of it. That. That. Even that is what is finished at the cross for you. We do not have to be embarrassed before God, not in Christ, because Jesus bore our disgrace so that we could be clothed in his honor by faith. We can also learn from this passage that Christians should sing sad songs to express Christian sadness together. I think you already do that well. Jesus used psalms of lament liturgically so that he could use them devotionally. The psalm that he quotes is not a happy, clappy song on the cross. He quotes Psalm 22. That's a minor key psalm. Friend, if you don't have some minor key songs in your pocket for a dark day, what in the world are you going to sing to God when you're miserable and when you're suffering as a Christian and you don't understand it? The Psalms were the hymn book of the early church, and they were not nearly all happy, clappy sing songs. Psalm 22 is a sad song, and Jesus quotes and prays the saddest part of it during the saddest part of his life. 
So church, you should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that express the sadness and disillusionment of the Christian life. And you should not hide that piece of the Christian life from people who visit the church. I don't think you do. Don't start hiding it. Those are the songs they need. Those are the songs you need. You should encourage your pastor and your musicians to include them in their plans for Sunday services. Those songs enrich you. You did it at Phil's mom's funeral. I did it with you there. Keep doing it. It's not the only kind of song to sing, but it is an important kind of song to sing because being a Christian doesn't always feel good. Being a Christian doesn't always feel good, and that's normal. And one of the ways you feel the normality of that is you sing sad songs together at church, and you counsel yourself with the theology of the cross. Now, maybe you're a non-Christian here, and you're listening to this, and you wonder, well, how does this apply to me? I'm not a Christian. Well, confidence does not imply correctness. Many non-Christians are very confident in their non-Christian worldview. They're very confident in mocking their Christian friends. They're very confident in mocking the Bible and Christ himself. The pagan soldiers were confident to crucify Jesus, yet they didn't know what they thought they knew, and some actually repented before the day was out. A lot of people want to say that today's dominant worldview is secular. No, it's not. Today's dominant worldview is not purely secular. It's more correctly pagan, like the soldiers. People still worship today. They just worship imminence, closeness, not transcendence, aboveness. You can talk in spiritual and almost liturgical terms about the environment and sex all day long with a non-Christian. You feel one with nature, and that's a spiritual feeling to you as a non-Christian. So it does something to you to look at the beauty of nature. You pay it forward because you think, well, what goes around comes around. That's the way the world works, right? A lot like karma. Sex makes you feel alive and connected to something more inherently and intrinsically powerful. Something essential about existence as a person in the world. You can talk about the spiritual dimensions of environmentalism and sex all day long without ever coming into conflict with the dominant worldview. It's okay if you preach about those things spiritually. But as soon as you talk about a transcendent, risen, ruling, reigning Jesus, non-Christian, as soon as we talk about that to you, where does your civility go? Where does your purported pluralism go? From our perspective as Christians... It goes out the window. You're not interested in that kind of pluralism. Not genuine pluralism. Not something that's really different from what you believe. And the mocking begins. This is how confident the modern man still is in rejecting Jesus. There's no civil discourse about him anymore. No reasoned arguments. Just dismissive mocking. Ridiculous. That's the world's approach to Christianity. And yet, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That was their position at the foot of the cross. You can be very confident and very wrong about rejecting Jesus. Maybe you have mocked, the, mocked Jesus like the soldiers mocked him. But afterwards, they shook their heads. Not at Jesus, but at themselves. Non-Christian, don't just take it from me. Take it from a Roman soldier who mocked Jesus and saw him die. He really is the Son of God. And yet, there is a self-righteous strain of person today that poses as the truly good people. These are pious conservatives. They're confident in their own conservatism, and so they view themselves as the most right people, not just right politically, but right morally, metaphysically, even biblically, like the priests. Quoting Psalm 22 against Jesus. They trust in their own family values and a worldview that includes God and right and wrong, truth, purity, love, even scripture. And yet, their operating assumption about a savior is false. They think they need saved from a politically oppressive government like the Roman occupation. 
And if Jesus can't or won't do that, he's not the Savior they want. They're like those who wanted to make Israel great again. Take Israel back for the Jews. They want Jesus to lead them into political freedom from pagans. And maybe that's you. Maybe you trust more in your morality, your conservatism, your spirituality, your religiousness, your rigidness, your rightness. Maybe you know and even can quote many verses from the Bible. But it's another thing to understand and apply scripture correctly, as we've seen. Maybe you think you and yours only need to be saved from other people's wrongness. But not God's wrath. So instead of making disciples of all nations, maybe you'd rather make a nation of all disciples. And you shake your head at those who disagree with you. But Jesus did not die to save the right from the left. He died to save both right and left from God's wrath over all of our sins. But there is another self-righteous strain of religion today that also postures as the truly good people. These are the pious liberals. They are confident in their own liberalism and therefore they don't feel their need either of the blood of Jesus to cover their sins or the righteousness of Jesus to cover their shame. They are the most liberal people and therefore they view themselves as the most generous, open-minded, accepting, open-hearted people. And their operating assumption about a savior is also false. They think people need to be saved from economic and social situations, not their own sins. So more bread, fewer synagogues. More healings, fewer homilies. More social services, fewer sermons. He saved others, but he, himself he cannot save. Save them from what? From death, from disease, from hunger, from starvation, from congenital defects, from social exclusion. That's the salvation they're looking for from Jesus. And too bad, some say. Jesus could have done a lot more good for a lot more people if he hadn't preached himself up to be the son of God. He could have stayed alive longer. He could have lived twice as long, done twice as much good. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you trust in your own liberalism. Your concern for the oppressed, your magnetism towards the marginalized. You always take the side of the benighted. And that's your righteousness. Maybe you consider yourself more Christ-like than most Christians because you like to save people from their sickness and social ills, just like Jesus. And maybe you think that if only the right people would fall in line with the left, we'd be left with more people who are actually right. And you shake your head at those who disagree with you. If only they were more like me. Like my tribe. And yet again, that's not why Jesus died. Jesus did not die to save the left from the right. He died to save both left and right from God's wrath over our sins. And then you have today's pious pedestrians who think they're the good people by keeping a low profile, not rocking the boat, keeping their own views to themselves. Love and let love. To them, everything is simple. Just keep your religion to yourself, hold down a job, provide for your family, whatever that family looks like, and go along to get along. Maybe that's you. You go along with the crowd because surely so many people who reject Jesus can't be wrong. You consider yourself spiritual, but you try not to overdo it because you know how that annoying that is when other people do that. And after all, if you rock the boat, they may do you like they did Jesus. Maybe you want the power of Jesus' resurrection without the fellowship of his sufferings. But there is no such thing. If that were possible, Jesus himself would have come down from the cross. There is no resurrection without a death. And there is no kingdom without a cross. There is no glory without shame. A crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. A crossless Jesus is a different Jesus, unworthy of what his name means, Savior. You must preach the cross. And you must experience it. Death to your sin. Death to your pride. And you must follow Jesus in the cross of discipleship if you would have fellowship with the real Christ at all. They mocked him, 
and they will mock us for following him. And that is the normal Christian life. But neither public opinion nor pious mocking can manipulate Jesus' identity. The world cannot mock or manipulate Jesus out of his divinity. Jesus doesn't disavow his divinity just because the whole world mocks and kills him for it. Nor did Jesus disavow his divinity even though he himself felt for a time disavowed by his heavenly father at the cross. He owns his divine sonship and lives in it as the suffering Messiah who will find vindication from the one he still calls my God on the cross. Perception is not reality. Reality is reality. And the reality is truly, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's not some pious, biased, religious power grab of a right-leaning fanatic. That's a Roman centurion who had just mocked this man six hours ago and violently. But sinner, you can repent and be forgiven even for your own mocking of Jesus. The very soldiers who mocked Jesus before his crucifixion marveled at him after the crucifixion. They recognized, they knew, they confessed, truly, this was the Son of God. Now look at how badly they sinned against Jesus. What they did was awful. They ridiculed him, they mocked him, they made fun of him, they beat him over the head. They spit on him, they punched him. They literally crucified him. And yet Jesus was crucified for that centurion and those who repented with him. Jesus wanted to save even those guys. Can you believe that? If those people can come to repentance and true confession of faith in Jesus as son of God and king over God's kingdom, then so can you, sinner. No matter how badly you have sinned against Jesus or against other people, but you have to stop shaking your head at Jesus and at other people and start shaking your head at yourself. You agree with God about his holiness, about your sinfulness, about his right to send you to eternal conscious torment in hell for your mockery of his only eternal son, and the all-sufficiency of Jesus' blood and righteousness to reconcile you to God by faith alone, in Jesus alone. And once we trust in Christ, we shake our heads at his cross because of our own unworthiness. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why should I gain? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Shaking my head. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Maybe, maybe it's time you started shaking your head at that. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have ourselves shaken our heads in self-righteousness at everyone who refuses to agree with us about many things. We have even, in our darker moments, shaken our heads at what Jesus expects of us as his followers. We think it to be unreasonable. Forgive us. May we find a new humility in the foot of the cross 
that you might help us to see Jesus' majesty and our unworthiness and his all-sufficiency and our ignorance and his wisdom, our falseness and his truth, our mercilessness and his mercy, our sin and his righteousness. May we shake our heads, not because it cannot be true, but because it is. Break our hearts afresh, we pray, with all these truths, by your mercy. For Jesus' sake. Amen.